0: Take your copy of God's Word with me this morning, open it back to the letter of James, James chapter 5. There is no worse game to play and to lose, in my opinion, than the classic game Monopoly. (laughs) Losing Monopoly involves paying all your money to other players, selling all your hotels and houses back to the bank to get more money just to survive in the game, then eventually mortgaging all of your properties in the desperate, futile attempt To stay in the game just a little bit longer. And while you lose, your wife becomes rich at your own... I mean, other players get rich at your own expense. You can tell how usually the rhythm of that game goes in our house. Losing Monopoly is the most demeaning and humiliating circumstance in all of board game history. There is is no worse experience in board games than to lose at Monopoly... It's why we don't play it at church. <laughs> Losing at Monopoly, is, is humiliating as humiliating as it can be and, and frustrating and irritating as it can be, is maybe the closest that some of us will get to experiencing the, the plight, the difficult uh, uh, life situation of some of the Christians that we'll encounter in James chapter 5. Not the rich Christians that James will be rebuking, but the poor, needy Christians who are uh, who are being exploited and extorted by the hands of the rich. This is about the third week in the row where James, in his letter, we have seen, uh, is very harsh on sin in the church and very clear about calls to repentance in the church. Some of you may say, Pastor, why do you preach on sin so much? And I, my response would be, I would preach on it less if the Bible talked about it less. This morning we'll find in James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 that the judgment of God awaits those who have acted faithlessly by hoarding their wealth and exploiting the poor for their own pleasure. Genuine Christians, on the other hand, who have come to trust Christ for salvation will be ought to be convicted about selfish and abusive perspectives of worldly wealth. And we who are genuine Christians having a right perspective about worldly wealth will repent of those sins and temptations to use what God has allowed us to have to exploit and extort others. This morning, I would hope, as we make our way through the first verses of James 5, that we would be led to exchange the empty promise of worldly wealth and desire for the better and sure promise of salvation and the extravagant blessing of God to us through Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word? James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James says to the church, And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You may be seated. James very clearly, I think, highlights two important points that we need to catch this morning from these verses, and then there is a sort of uh, a consummate realization, uh, uh, another point that goes along with that that's not as explicit in what James says, but I think is pretty implicit from what we can gather from the text. The first of the points that James wants us to know is this, that pursuing worldly wealth will ultimately leave you empty. Pursuing worldly wealth in this life will leave you empty. Here at the beginning of chapter 5, James continues calling out, rebuking those in the church who have sins that have gone uncorrected, who have unrepentant sin. He says, come now, you rich, just as he said at the end of chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. James is calling the rich in the church in the churches that he 's writing to, especially, to listen up to what he is writing to them. Come now, listen, and what he is writing is that uh, the message he is conveying is that their ungodly pursuit of wealth and worldly possessions above everything else in life is ultimately to their judgment and will be to their destruction already in james 's letter we have seen several times. Uh, the brother of Jesus rebuking the pitfalls and temptations of those who are rich and who, at the same time, call themselves Christian. He says in chapter one, or in chapter one, verses nine through eleven, he he calls out the foolishness of boasting and in fra- the frailty of riches in this life. In the first verses of chapter two, he rebukes the church for showing favoritism to those who are visibly wealthy and well off. Uh, Later in chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, James rebukes the church for not caring for the needy. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, he calls out the selfish ambition and jealousy that arises in the hearts of those who are greedy to get things for themselves. Last week we saw at the end of chapter 4, James uh, rebuking, correcting the church for uh, those who are kind of among that wealthy merchant class for boasting about their ability to plan for tomorrow and making a profit there. And now here in chapter 5, he tells the church to weep and to howl those who are rich and wealthy among them because of the judgment that is coming upon them from God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And what is the judgment that is coming? Well, specifically, it is that all that they have trusted and all that they have amassed for themselves, all of their wealth in this life is rotting and corroding and fading away. The wealth of the rich has not faded away in the present tense. No, gold and silver are valued because uh, of of their uh, perseverance through decades, centuries, even millennia, without rotting or rusting or crumbling. But gold and silver, the gold and silver of the rich in James 5, have already corroded in an eternal sense when we consider the coming judgment of God. Because on the day of God's final judgment, all of this world will be purified and made new. In the eternal sense, even the most incorruptible substances like silver and gold and your stock portfolio will tarnish and corrode. They are as good as corroded even now for their inability to save on the day of judgment. Hear the warning of Jesus against pursuing worldly wealth like this in life. In Matthew 6 verses 19 through 21 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. "...where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Again, Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verses 15 and following, Jesus says to those listening, "...take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions." he told those listening a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, it is not rich toward God. Friends, know this this morning, it is not a sin to be wealthy, it is not a sin to have much from the hand of God provided to you, but it is sinful to hold on to your wealth, to hold on to your riches, to use it only for yourself and not for the sake of others or the sake of God's kingdom until the day you die. Pursuing worldly wealth in a selfish way like that will ultimately leave you empty. Yep. Your money will not save you. Your wealth will account for nothing on the day of God's judgment. Only your relationship with Him. Yep. Pursuing worldly wealth will leave you empty, James warns. Secondly, in verses 4 through 6, James teaches that, self-indul- that the self-indulgent exploitation of the poor is what ultimately incurs God's judgment. That is a specific sin that is being condemned or rebuked here. Rich people exploiting the poor in the church for the good of the rich. Already, James has begun to point to the coming judgment of God. It's on its way. Their their wealth will be corroded. But now here in these verses, 4 through 6, he gives the reasons for why they will incur God's judgment. The reasons for the judgment of God upon the rich in the church who are extorting the poor are these. First, The wealthy have extorted and exploited those who are needy among them. Listen to verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This verse indicates that these wealthy people in the church, calling themselves Christians, have wrongly, even fraudulently, withheld payment to the laborers who worked in their fields. These wealthy Christians lied to their workers about the availability of funds for payment and their own ability to pay what is owed to those who worked for them. This very practice has been condemned by God, not just here in James 5 verse 4, but as far back as the law of Moses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24:15, the Lord says to the people of Israel through Moses these words, You shall give him, the, the worker of your field, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, For he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. The wealthy have also used what they have gained by fraud and by selfish ambition to indulge their own hedonistic passions. The problem of the rich Christians in the churches to whom James is writing is not just that they have exploited the poor, but they have used what they have profited by exploitation to spend it upon themselves. Verse 5 likens the the church. Just listen to to verse 5 again. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts on the day of slaughter. James is here likening the church to cows who have gorged themselves on choice grass on the day that they will be killed and slaughtered. As such, these rich Christians that James is correcting in the church care so much about satisfying their passions, about satisfying their pleasures, that they have lost all sight of all perspective on the judgment that is coming. Consider God's word through the prophet Amos several hundred years before Jesus was born. Amos chapter four, verses one through three. This is what God says to his people, Judah. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fishhooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon. declares the Lord. Those who indulge themselves at the expense of others with no foresight, with no thought about God's coming judgment, set themselves up for this kind of punishment. They are like cows who feast on the day their heads will be removed from their bodies and their flesh sold at market. Third, James teaches, shows us that the wealthy, in acting this way, in extorting and exploiting the poor, in using what they have profited through exploitation to fulfill their own passions, the wealthy that he is rebuking have in this way murdered those that they have defrauded. Verse 6 says this, you have condemned You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Very grave, very serious are the sins of the wealthy who have exploited the poor. Their condemnation refers to uh, when when James says you have condemned the righteous person. He is referring to the the use of the judicial system uh, in antiquity to defraud the poor of what little possessions that they had. Rich people were taking poor people to court, and because the rich people had resources, they were able to manipulate the court system to take uh, the the property, the possessions, the things that were rightfully owned by the poor, and take them for themselves. The charge of murder may be literal. Maybe the rich people have literally murdered poor people in order to acquire their possessions for themselves. But more likely, this is The practical outworking of the defrauding that is taking place, you see, as the poor are unjustly left unpaid, and as the poor have had their property stolen in court, they are ultimately left destitute and with no ability to feed themselves, no ability to care for their families, they are left to starve to death. What is worse is that these poor, defrauded folk have not even resisted the wicked, wealthy Christians who have done this to them. You've condemned, you've murdered the righteous person. He does not even resist you. These poor Christians who are being defrauded and taken advantage of had literally done nothing wrong to their oppressors. They were not presently even attempting to take their oppressors to court. Indeed, those who are righteous and trusting God for justice on the final day do not resist those who would take advantage of them even in situations like this. Such a course of action demonstrates their faith in God and ultimately vindicates their cause before God. It makes God's justice all the more just, all the more appropriate when the righteous person seeks God's provision even in times of difficulty. There's a bad situation for the rich Christians in James chapter 5 who are exploiting and extorting the poor in the church. James does not explicitly call them to repent, but he does so implicitly in the first verse Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He doesn't say, Turn and repent and you'll be saved, but instead he gives them a very harsh word about where their lives are headed if they continue in this sort of action. The call to weep and to howl is a call to repent in a sense. So show sorrow for the sins that you have worked against the people. Uh, Among you, against the the poor people uh, that you have defrauded. Many of us may be reading James 5, and we are thinking of many wealthy people that we would like to uh, see go through this sort of judgment. (laughs) CEOs, bosses, corporate heads, maybe certain politicians, I don't know that, you are, that we, are desire, we just have a visceral reaction to say, yes, God, do this to those wicked people. Yeah. Thinking that, assuming that, we don't have a problem with sin the same way that these rich people in the church in James 5 did. Here's the final point I'd like to make for us this morning, and it is an implicit point from James chapter 5. It is this. Sin is not a rich people problem. We may be tempted when we read these verses of James 5 to think that because we are not rich, because we are not exorbitantly wealthy, because we are not among the one percenters of our nation, that we are off the hook from the sins that James is rebuking. This passage is not for me, but we would be wrong to do so. You see, what James is rebuking here is the specific manifestation of a particular kind of sinful orientation of heart. The sinful action that James is addressing is the exploiting and extorting of the poor by the rich so that the rich may live in indulgence. But there is a deeper sinful principle at work in the hearts of the wealthy Christians that James is correcting here. There's a a deeper principle working out uh, in their lives that brings them to to exploit and extort the poor. That principle is this, the love of money and the love of contentment with wealth Have replaced in the hearts of the rich whom James is rebuking, have replaced a love for God and a contentment with his provision. The love of money and contentment with wealth have replaced a love for God and contentment with his provision. Here's the really hard, cutting, dividing truth about this sinful inclination you can be dirt poor and guilty of this sin. You can have not a cent to your name and still love money, still desire physical possessions more than you love and desire God and His provision. In reality, what keeps most of us from doing what the sinful rich of James 5 has done is that we simply don't have the financial means or the social power to extort and exploit others for our own gain. Yet, left to our own devices, if we had the kind of wealth and resources that these rich people uh, did, we we might be just as likely to exploit and extort the poor. Listen to the words of Paul to the young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. You may have often heard at this point preachers or others say, you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. I saw a picture once of a hearse with a U-Haul behind it, and so that illustration doesn't work anymore. But anyway, we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content, says Paul. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Listen, Paul does not say that money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money. A desire to gain money is at the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So it is uh, the case of the wealthy believers in James chapter 5 who have so loved wealth that they have wandered from the faith and pierce themselves with the, ju- the, the pain of judgment that is coming from God. This truth remains. We do not have to have a lot of money to love money. We do not have to have a lot of money to love money. Who among us has not thought to ourselves, if I only had another hundred dollars, if I only had a thousand, ten thousand, maybe just ten dollars, if I only had that, then I could fill in the blank." And most of the time, what we could do with that $100,000, $10,000, dollars is spend it on ourselves. If I only had $100, I could, I don't know what I could do. You can't do much with $100 anymore. If I only had $1,000, I could, you know, fix that thing or get that new TV or do that thing for myself. Who among us has not embraced a love of money when we have said, even to ourselves, I would do anything for this or that amount of money? I would do anything to be rich like that person. Does that very phrase, I would do anything, not betray in us even a willingness to murder to get what we want? No, friends, sin, even the sin of loving money, is not just a rich people problem. Sin is a people problem, period. If you're here this morning, if you're hearing my voice, and you are a people, you are a person, Sin is your problem. And what sin so often does in us is to convince us that something else is better than God, that something else is more rewarding than knowing God, that something else is more of a blessing, is more of a pleasure to us, is more satisfying in life than being in relationship with God. Many times these lies of our sinful nature are, are not even rooted in pursuing personal wealth but simply pursuing personal autonomy, personal ownership of our lives, of our destiny, as though total libertarian freedom and the sole ability to determine our futures is what is best for us. In reality, what we need to do is not pursue the motivations and pleasures of our heart, but instead to repent of the problem of sin and embrace the extravagant blessing of salvation in Jesus Christ. Sin is not just a rich people problem. Sin is a people problem. And what we need to do with our sin, whether you've been a Christian for six seconds or 60 years, is to continue repenting of the problem of sin and embrace the extravagant blessing of salvation from God to us in Jesus Christ. You see... The cure to our sin problem, the cure to the problem of our selfish hearts is to be captivated by something better than ourselves, is to be convinced that there is a better purpose for which to live than the purpose that we have for our lives. The cure to the love of money, the cure to the pursuit of of pleasure is to be satisfied with something truly greater. Dear friends, that something is not a something, it is a someone, We need to be captivated by someone greater than ourselves and that someone greater is Jesus Christ himself. And the the something to be more satisfied with is the blessing of having our sins removed by God as we trust in Jesus, his son. If you don't believe me, hear the words of, Ephesians, of Paul in his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and following. Listen to how wonderfully he describes the blessing that we have in Christ uh, through faith in him and the salvation that comes by his death and resurrection. Listen. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Think of all the ways that God could bless us in heaven spiritually. And add to that infinitely more because your minds cannot comprehend how God has blessed us in Christ. Verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. This is part of the blessing rescue from our sin, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You see, when God blesses people through salvation, He doesn't do so just a little bit. And if we think that blessing that salvation is just a small blessing in life, we have missed it entirely. God lavishes His blessing upon us in all of His wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, says Paul, according to His purpose, which He He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you see how cosmically beautiful the plan of salvation is? In him, says Paul, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Have you come to hope in Christ, dear friend? The point of that is that your life would resound in praise to the glory of God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 13 of Ephesians 1. In Him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. When you came to believe in Christ, when you trusted his sacrifice on the cross for your sins, his resurrection from the dead for your resurrection and justification with God, you were sealed. You had received money in escrow, which is not money itself, but the Holy Spirit himself living in us as a down payment of the salvation of the eternal life that Christ purchased for us in his death and resurrection. God doesn't say, be saved, be blessed, and off you go. No, he says, you have been saved as you have trusted in my provision for your salvation. And I'm going to make a promise to you that I'm going to finish what I've started. And that promise is my own spirit living in you. the cure to our sin problem is for our hearts to be captivated by something better, by someone better. Dear friends, that someone better is Jesus Christ and that something better is the eternal life we will have in his presence even after these bodies die. Amen. Let us see then how petty and simple and useless is the wealth of this world in light of the extravagant blessing of God to us in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted this Jesus, if you've never received salvation, you've never been redeemed from your sin, by faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who gave his life for you and rose from the dead, receive the blessing of salvation today by trusting in Jesus. Yeah. And it's, it, it is incredibly simple to do. Salvation is a gift that God gives to us, not something that we earn. And so to receive a gift, you just take it from the one giving. The Bible tells us the way that we receive the gift of salvation in Jesus is by, simply by trusting him as Lord. By believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Lord of all creation, who took on flesh, lived a life without sin, died on the cross to pay for our unworthiness before God, and was raised from the dead. Call Him Lord of your life. Turn from your sin. Express godly sorrow for how you have denied and rejected and run from God and cling to Jesus, your Savior. And in so doing, you will receive the blessing of salvation today. There is no magic prayer to pray. There is just simply an orientation of heart to have. God, this is my life. I'm sorry for my sin. I've done things on my own, uh, in my own way, by my own plans, how I want, when I want, with whom I want, for too long. And now, God, I need you. Jesus, I trust you. You are Lord of my life. Take control of me. Lead, guide, direct me. Show me how to live my life as a follower of you. Dear friend, receive the wonderful blessing. Of salvation by faith in Jesus today. Christian, you who have already trusted Jesus, you who have already come to hope in Christ, resulting in the praise of his glory, being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, re-embrace, grasp anew the embarrassment of riches that we have in knowing and being known by God. Preach the gospel to yourself today with intensity, captivating your own attention, loving the fact that God has lavished upon us, with his grace, an embarrassment of riches because Christ has died for our sins and been raised from the dead to bring us to the Father. Sin is not a rich people problem. Sin is a people problem. And the cure to that problem is faith in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and was raised from the dead that we might be justified, made right with God our Father who made us in his image to know, love, and worship him. Let your heart and your mind be captivated by that glorious truth today. I love this morning that we are able to share in the Lord's Supper together as a church because what we are remembering as we take this little bit of bread and drink this cup is Christ's sinless body that was broken for us on the cross, the blood that was shed for us on the cross for our sins. We know as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve for our rebellion against God is physical and spiritual death. We know as the author of Hebrews says it, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins unless something dies, someone dies for the sins that have been committed. As Jesus hung upon the cross at Calvary, as his body was broken and his blood was shed, he paid the price for our sins. Once for all, never to be repeated. And as we take this small memorial meal together, this little bit of bread, this cup that we drink, we are reminded of Christ's body and blood that were broken and shed for us that we might receive the blessing of salvation, that we might be made spiritually rich in Christ as we've come to trust him. This meal that we take, the Lord's Supper, is a meal for Christians. It is for those of us who have identified ourselves with Christ as Lord and Savior, who have repented and are repenting of sin, and for those who have also identified with His church, with other believers who have repented and are repenting of sin with faith in Jesus. And so this morning, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, please know that we are exceedingly glad that you are here. Uh, but please uh, refrain from partaking uh, in the Lord's Supper this morning, because in so doing, you would be saying that, uh, something about yourself that is not true, that you've made a commitment to follow Jesus, and in fact, you have not yet. And so we just ask you to maintain some integ- uh, hold integrity this morning, uh, and not take a meal in vain or in a meaningless way. Parents, likewise, if you have children who have not yet come to faith in Jesus, they've not made a public profession of faith, been baptized in obedience to, to, to following Jesus, keep your children from taking this meal, because in so doing, they would be taking it wrongly. Instead, use this as an opportunity to remind your children of the wonderful truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for their sins. Even if you don't think your children are old enough to understand sin, right, and their need for redemption, preach the gospel to them again this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus, know this morning that what you're seeing is a body of believers who have come to so love Jesus and to see our need for redemption from sin, that we have given our whole lives to him and to one another for the sake of taking this gospel, this good news message to the world that we all, uh, like sheep, have gone astray. But Jesus, the Son of God, came to seek and to save that which was lost, and he does so by dying for our sins just a moment, I'm going to pray. As I pray, I'll ask our uh, deacons who are attending the table this morning to come and tend the table. And then as I close in prayer, uh, we'll begin to, to serve the elements. And here's how we'll do that. Um, those of you who are comfortably able, I'll ask you to just stand, come forward, grab a piece of the bread and a cup, and return to your seats. And we will uh, take, the, we'll take the elements all together once everyone has been served. If you're not comfortably able to come forward this morning, if uh, it's just difficult for you to, to to walk up and that sort of thing, just simply raise your hand where you are. One of our deacons will be more than happy to serve you where you're seated, but just raise your hand and keep it raised until our uh, one of our deacons makes it to you. And then once we've all received the elements and sat down together, then we'll, uh, we'll take them all together as a family of faith. Let me pray, and as I do, deacons, you come. This will be our time of response this morning. I'll be sitting here on the front row as you come to receive the elements. If you need to talk with me about anything. Make a decision to follow Jesus. If the Lord is leading in your life or the life of your family in any way, come and let me know this morning as we share in the Lord's Supper together.